icebreakers. There's almost no limit to the variety and the cheesiness of icebreakers, but this episode I'm discussing the good kind, those with close set frames, heavy rounded bows and clearing hulls. I already mentioned icebreakers as early as episode 67, wherein the Soviet operator Krasin rescued the remnants of Umberto Nebile's crew from the wreck of the airship Italia to the north of Svalbard. But these ships with the close set frames, heavy rounded bows and clearing hulls are entering the expedition stories with increasing frequency and warrant some closer attention to delineate why they succeed where they do and why they fail where they don't do what it says on the box. The term icebreaker dates back to pre-industrial Europe. Villages and cities reliant on canal systems for commerce sometimes employed teams of axe, pike and mattock armed boaters to keep their trade lanes open during winter months or at least as late in the winter as possible, depending on the latitude. This led to horse-toed barges for the same purpose. No cargo, just a heavy hull with a keel built so as to allow the boat to ride onto the ice and crack it under its weight. Breaking ice up does allow greater access to boat traffic, but what's even better is pushing the broken bits out of the way so they don't still act as a barrier and put holes in the sides of vessels following the icebreaker, which led to the idea of a clearing hull. The below water shape of an icebreaking vessel can be formed to push broken ice down and to the sides, leaving a mostly clear path in the ship's wake. The first ocean-going steam-powered ship featuring a heavy icebreaking bow and a clearing hull was the Yermak. Built by Armstrong Whitworth in Newcastle, UK, for the Imperial Russian Navy, the Yermak launched in 1898. To meet the requirement of breaking through as much as 2 metres of sea ice, the hull featured more frames per unit waterline length than an equivalent size open water ship, offering greater resistance to the crushing pressures ice can apply to a ship caught in its midst. The hull's skin comprised multiple layers of steel sheeting to resist puncture by ice edges. These design elements provide ice strengthening and feature in many ships intended for high latitudes work, but it was the shape of the Yermax hull that did the actual ice breaking. A steeply raked stem allowed the bow to ride over the edge of an ice margin. The tubby, rounded cross-section bow rising over the ice applied a lot of weight to the brittle surface quickly, and this did the verb denoted in the noun. The clearing hull then rafted the resulting cakes of broken ice under the ice either side of the ship's passage, leaving a path for ice-strengthened ships to follow. As is the case with most 19th century new technology, the 20th century put icebreakers in a pressure cooker with increasing heat in the form of wars, both hot and cold. As with other transport forms, sustained research and development forced icebreakers to conform to a convergent successful model. It's rare for an icebreaker of any significant use to diverge from the following common elements. 1. Small length to beam ratio. Short vessels can better navigate torturous passages among ice and can turn more readily than longer vessels with equivalent beam. Sitting wider on the water than any following vessel precludes the need for a clearing vessel to make a second pass on any given passage it opens up. Theoretically. 2. High power to displacement ratio. Icebreakers don't earn their keep plying liquid water, but in plying solid water, which is harder and which therefore requires more power per unit forward motion than equivalent sized vessels getting about in the runny version. 
3. Electric propulsion. No matter what powers an icebreaker, it pays to convert the energy output by the ship's nuclear plant or diesel engines or impulse drive to electricity before sending it down the shafts to the screws. Icebreakers need to accelerate quickly from a standing start, and no method of transferring energy from any form of heat engine to propellers can yet beat electrical motors. Conversion losses are compensated for by the speed at which an icebreaker can ram an ice edge, even after a short run-up, or the speed at which it can change the direction of a screw in order to confuse the ice with turbulence sufficient to reach the frozen water's limit of comprehension, at which it breaks up. 4. Heavy-duty propellers and rudders that can take a few knocks from ice, set as low as possible to keep them clear of most ice. Both the framing and the skinning of ice-strengthening design elements add to the weight of a ship, decreasing the potential fuel fraction or cargo fraction, but these deficits are offset by the ability to use the fuel to deliver the cargo to places otherwise isolated by ice. As with the ice-breaking barges of pre-industrial canal networks, modern icebreaker's main role is opening up waterways to keep other ships moving. An icebreaker can carry cargo and fuel and people to a destination, but in the modern maritime space, they most often work at the head of a convoy of ice-strengthened vessels bound for some ice-bound destination. Icebreakers are also regularly called on to go to the aid of other icebreakers that broke a little too much ice and wound up beset by the very space someone designed them to own. Some of these ships can break sea ice as much as 3 metres thick, and some can break 1 metre thick ice continuously, but there's still a limit to their structural and motive strength that nature can exceed. Where thin ice doesn't require much additional horsepower to motor through than a rough sea, thicker ice pushes back against such intrusions with force exponentially linked to its thickness and a couple of other factors arising from the conditions under which it formed. Anywho, thick ice can stop an icebreaker in its tracks, forcing the crew to resort to repeatedly backing water and charging the ice front. The powerful engines push the bow onto the ice and the weight brought to bear, as Archimedes' principle takes its bat and ball and temporarily goes home, presses down on the ice surface. Archimedes' principle only pretended to go home and applies its bat to the ice which, all being well, breaks apart and spreads under the other ice under the influence of the clearing hull. Sometimes the ice just holds the ship's bow up in the air, refusing to crack. In these instances, the ship's master orders the engines astern and backs up a bit to give the next attempt a bit more of a run-up. Pushing the bow further up onto the problematic flow increases the weight bearing down on the ice and, hopefully, breaks it but not always. Again, there's a limit to how thick an ice flow an icebreaker can break, forcing the metal-clad monkeys to seat alternate routes or modes to move on. The rounded, shallow draft shape of a clearing hull decreases hydrodynamic efficiency and increases the rolling motion of such ships at sea, making icebreakers expensive to move and unpleasant to travel in. Icebreakers can't feature structural or mechanical stabilizers. Bat wings, bilge keels, flopper stoppers or any other beam increasing or lateral drag enhancing devices would quickly hook up in and get torn off by any ice an icebreaker tried to break. So the hull, in addition to being beamy and shallow, tends to be smooth. This adds to the shitty ride icebreakers tend to offer in open waters, where rolling 50 degrees either side of vertical isn't out of the question. Not exclusive to icebreakers, Water ballast systems comprise large pipes and tanks plumbed through a ship as it's built. 
These receive seawater as ballast to increase a ship's stability and decrease its rolling, pitching and yawing motion. The seawater adds to the ship's weight, pushing the hull deeper into the sea. In turn, this adds to the ship's archimedic upthrust as more seawater is displaced by the ship. Taking on ballast moves the centre of gravity and the centre of buoyancy of the ship lower. So long as the ship's hull is wider at the top than at the bottom, and so long as you don't store the ballast at the top of the mastheads, the centre of buoyancy depresses further than the centre of gravity, resulting in an increase in the righting moment of the ship. This makes the ship less likely to capsize, and makes the ship less likely to depart from the upright, giving a less sprightly ride to all, and great relief to those of us suffering seasickness. Some ships can move their ballast about quickly enough to dampen roll, pitch and yaw in real time. Though this comes at a cost of energy and space, as it takes a lot of power to pump large volumes of seawater in and out of otherwise redundant spaces to achieve the smooth ride. It's also really noisy when applied in anything other than a fancy cruise ship with lots of sound insulation, as the pumps run fast and hard and the intubed water gets turbulent in spite of the best efforts of fluid dynamics engineers. The added bonus of fast operating ballast pumping systems to icebreakers is the ability to heal the ship from side to side while sat atop a recalcitrant ice flow. If the ice won't give to initial impact, imparted weight and repeated ramming, perhaps rolling about on it like a big steel elephant seal will do the trick. Inventive masters have even resorted to hoisting heavy loads outboard on a deck crane to add that little extra moment necessary to encourage ice to give up being one solid block and let the ship through. Ice breaking. The practical application of all those measurements you made in physics class with pulleys and levers and weights. Icebreakers need to output a lot of energy when doing their verb, and steam or diesel powered vessels burn through a lot of fuel when working in ice edge. Given the greater than average chance an icebreaker crew risks of spending a winter iced in somewhere remote and unpleasantly cold, the option to hold fuel in reserve for heating the vessel accommodations to slightly above terminally chilly holds great appeal, but the fuel fraction, which equates to weight, is dictated by the strength of the ship, which equates to weight, and its cargo fraction, which equates to weight. This led to a 1950s assessment of nuclear-powered icebreaking vessels able to sail for years on end without visiting a port to bunker more fissile material and burnable poisons. In 1957, what was then the United Soviet Socialist Republics launched the first nuclear-powered icebreaker, the Lenin. While nuclear-powered submarines already operated, kicking off with the USS Nautilus in 1951, so far as we know, the Lenin was the first nuclear-powered surface vessel and the first nuclear-powered civilian vessel. It experienced two nuclear accidents that we know of in the 30 years it operated and it now serves as a floating museum in Murmansk. In 1977, the Russian icebreaker Arktika became the first surface vessel to visit the North Pole, again pipped at the post by submarines, including the USS Skate, which delivered Sir Hubert Wilkins' ashes there in 1957. To date, Russia remains the only operator of nuclear-powered icebreakers. The good kind of icebreaker won't help you get to know new colleagues they also won't embarrass you or unnecessarily spike your anxiety hormones. They will clear ice out of your path, and might push aside any colleagues who think humiliating games and prying questions are a good way to bring a workplace team together, 
if you take the precautionary step of throwing those people in the sea, as you should. Thanks this episode to Jim Butler, who sent me a copy of Charles Swithenbank's Vodka on Ice, which I haven't been able to get hold of in Australia. Thanks to Jeff Maynard for a huge haul of secondhand polar literature that he no longer needs, and for alerting me to the upcoming release on a Norwegian animated film about the stupid little dog Tatina, which appears to tell the story of Nabile and Amundsen in the Arctic through the eyes of a canine. Recently I've been listening to the Beths, an expert in a dying field, on repeat, though I haven't yet secured permission to play it as the outro for an episode. I'm working on it. I haven't released an episode in five months, and there's good reason for that. I spent the bulk of 2022 working on cargo boats, and I was having a great time among fantastic colleagues, but the spare time available to me was mostly spent supporting my children, who are having a really rough trot. Late in 2021, our youngest came to us and announced that they were experiencing gender dysphoria. That wasn't the problem. The problem arose in the way their community began treating them, when they turned up at school with a new name and new pronouns. I've mentioned before that Australia is a very bigoted nation. Uh, Trans people are copping it pretty hard since gay marriage bill passed and the bigots have had to find the next group to pick on. And we're still not giving women or other races or gay people a fair shot in Australia. So trans people are well downhill in terms of the Australian pecking order. The school did its best to support them, and we're grateful, but they can't stop kids being bigots in their spare time. And the tranche of hateful vitriol, some of it couched in terms of Hitler knew what to do with trans people, and Roman salutes and swastikas drawn pretty much everywhere an 11-year-old graffiti artist can access, took my child from a fun and funny school-loving 11-year-old to a depressed and school-fearing 12-year-old. And supporting my child is where a lot of my energy and time went in 2022. Add to that, their elder sibling came out as trans. They held back for a long time. They didn't know if there could be two trans children in one family. But statistics be damned, they feel the way they feel. They were also hesitant because they saw how their sibling was treated and were justifiably frightened at the prospect of announcing change in any way that might bring Australian bigotry to bear in their lives. So while I have missed making this series, it's been a pretty low priority in the MacArthur household this year. If you feel inclined to get in touch and tell me your opinions on trans matters and to contest my support for my children, don't bother. Safety and well-being of my children is more important to me than you listening to the series. And you can lie on your side, lift one knee towards your chest, lubricate your opinion and shove it up your ass. Take care and appreciate your coffee. And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided. Mm-hmm.